This, uh, this summer, we've been working our way through this basic statement of the Christian faith that we just confessed together earlier, the Apostles' Creed. And to guide us as we explore these central truths of the Christian faith, we've been turning to the Heidelberg Catechism, which we as Reformed Christians believe to be a faithful summary of what is contained in God's Word. And I thought you might all be interested to know that today we are exactly halfway through our series on the Apostles' Creed. We started this series on May 22 with Pastor Amanda's Sermon on Faith. And we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed ever since, looking at the Trinity, at God the Father, and creation. And now we're about halfway through the Creed, looking at God the Son and our salvation. And last Sunday, Pastor Carl preached on the conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and what it means that the Son of God became a human being. And this Sunday, we're going to be looking at the life of Christ, a life characterized by suffering. And so I think we have it on the screen. Uh, let's read together these words that express our faith from Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15, um, and I'll read the question, and if you could respond with the answer. What do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race, this he did in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation, and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge, and so freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. We thank you for the summary of scripture that is given to us in the Heidelberg Catechism and for the central principles of our faith, which are presented to us in the Apostles' Creed. Lord, we pray now that as we turn to meditate on the truths revealed in your word, that you would bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, body and soul, to transform our hearts, minds, eyes, and ears so that we can know, think, feel, and do, and see what it is that you would have for us today. Transform us more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our gospel reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John, chapter 18. And I'm actually going to read a bit more than what I said I was going to. And uh, when we put together the bulletin, I said I was going to read 
from verse 28 to the end, but I'm actually going to read through the first part of uh, chapter 19 as well. These passages deal with uh, the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. It's on page 1682 of the Bibles in the Pews. John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28, the apostle writes, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace, because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. And Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, 
You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he became even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the apparent meaninglessness of suffering is a problem for all people on the earth. From the greatest philosopher to the simplest child, suffering captivates us. It commands our attention because it is so clear, so obvious that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. This reality becomes especially true for kids as they get to around the age of grade seven or eight or six because that's when you uh, develop the capacity to really start to be able to feel for other people. And so all of a sudden, you're going through life and, and you reach the stage in development where, where their pain becomes your pain. You start to learn about the great injustices of the world, poverty, hunger, war, genocide, persecution, and it becomes very real their pain becomes very real. And we ask ourselves, why? Why is the world so full of suffering? And as hard as we try to find answers, none of them seem very satisfying. 
Philosophers and theologians have a term for this question, and it's a basic question that everybody deals with in every intro to philosophy course. The question of suffering. We call it the problem of evil. And the basic question from a philosophical perspective goes like this. If God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? If God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? And maybe you're asking yourself this question because in these past weeks, the news has made it seem as though the whole world is falling apart. I've been away from you for five weeks. And in those five weeks, there have been terrorist attacks in Florida, Turkey, Bangladesh, and France. The violent war carried out by ISIS has resulted in tens of thousands of deaths in Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, and Afghanistan. Boko Haram continues to carry out violent attacks and executions in Nigeria, Mali, and Chad. Al-Shabaab continues its uprising in Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And closer to home, our neighbors in the United States are experiencing suffering as well. The recorded deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile at the hands of police officers caused, caused outrage all over the United States. And the shooting of five police officers after a protest in Dallas, Texas, the very next day, shocked the nation. Violence, suffering, injustice. We see it in the world all around us and it all seems so senseless, so meaningless. People often say in times like this that violence doesn't solve anything, but when you look at our track record throughout history, violence seems to be the go-to method for solving humanity's problems. We solve our problems by making sure that others suffer more than we do. Far be it from us to take an eye for an eye. If they take one eye, we take two. If they kill one soldier, we bomb a village. If they bomb a village, we overthrow their government. And so it goes throughout history since the day that jealousy drove Cain to kill his brother Abel all the way to our present day. Violence and suffering pass from one hand to another, and it seems as though every time they pass hands, they are multiplied. Endless cycle. In the famous words of the fiddler on the roof, if everyone took an eye for an eye, all the world would be blind. Suffering is a problem for every good thinking person because suffering is so obviously wrong. The suffering that we see in the world around us, the suffering that we experience in our own lives causes us to cry out, why? The simple question, why? Why do people suffer? It's a question that we all have. A question that all people have. Because suffering is a problem for us. 
But when the community of believers comes together to talk about suffering, we only talk about the suffering of one. When we come together to profess our faith, we only talk about the suffering of Jesus. And this might seem disappointing, maybe, in the face of what seems like infinite human suffering around the world and throughout history, Christians only find room in their creed to speak of the suffering of one man. That might seem disappointing. But at the same time, it is the most profound response to the problem of evil. Because when God came into our world to do something about our miserable condition, he came as the man of sorrows. There are some people who criticize the Apostles' Creed for skipping over Jesus' life. People criticize the Apostles' Creed for going straight from his birth to his death. But the Catechism says that when we say he suffered, we're talking about Christ's life. We're talking about his whole life. Jesus didn't just suffer for a few hours on the cross. The Catechism reminds us that this suffering was characteristic of Jesus' whole life. During his whole life on earth, especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the human race. This is the reason why Jesus came to earth, to suffer for the sins of the whole world. When God comes to us, he comes as the man of sorrows. In the words of Isaiah 53, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Jesus experienced suffering throughout his life in body and in soul. And for people who experience suffering in their own lives, especially for believers, this knowledge brings with it immediate comfort. I was visiting my sister in Houston, Texas, when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed by police officers. When those five police officers were shot in Dallas, Texas, I was a six-hour drive away. And so on Saturday, I went to a service of lament and prayer in the historic Third, War, Third Ward, one of Houston's uh, most established African-American communities. And for the believers who were gathered there, the suffering of Christ was exactly the response that they needed. Because in his suffering, Christ took on their suffering. The unjust execution of Christ was very close for them because they saw in Christ's unjust execution the unjust execution of their black brothers across the United States. The blood of Christ was very real for them because they saw reflected in Christ's blood the blood of their brothers and sisters poured out in the streets. In that room on that Saturday morning, 
We read the Psalms, we prayed, and we sang about the blood of Christ, which was shed for the sins of the whole world. The Catechism goes on to explain why Christ suffered. In the first question, it asks why he suffered generally. In the second, it asks why he suffered under Pontius Pilate specifically. And in the third, why he suffered death by crucifixion rather than die in some other way. And in each of these three questions and answers, the Catechism presents us with a sort of divine cosmic trade that is happening. The biblical language here is atonement, which picks up on Old Testament language of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God's people would bring animal sacrifices to pay for their sins. They would bring animals to the temple, and the animal would bear the penalty of their sins in its death, so that they could go into the temple clean and pure to worship God. It's a sort of trade. The animal's life for your sin. But in the New Testament, God takes that penalty on himself. God steps into a world of violence, suffering, and injustice in the person of Jesus Christ, and instead of paying it back, he takes it all on himself. And this is the first trade that the Catechism tells us about in question and answer 37. Jesus suffered in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Jesus takes the body and soul condemnation that we deserve for our rebellion and sin he takes that on himself and instead gives us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. That's the first trade. The second trade that the Catechism identifies is a trade of guilt for innocence. And this is the one that takes place under Pontius Pilate as judge. Jesus, though innocent, was pronounced guilty before a civil judge, so that we, even though we are guilty, can be pronounced innocent before the heavenly judge. In the gospel story that we read, Pontius Pilate, even though he can find no charge to lay against Jesus, condemns him anyway, because he was afraid. Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And even the chief priests cry out, we have no king but Caesar. When it comes down to a choice between the... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> when it comes down to a choice between the innocent Lamb of God and Barabbas... The people choose Barabbas. And this should strike us, I think, because it seems almost blasphemous to put these two people up for a vote against each other. To put Jesus Christ in a vote against Barabbas, the criminal, the rebel. 
It's a violation of the rules of justice to ask for a vote between a murderer and the Son of God, the very one who is goodness and love. But that's exactly what happened that day. The innocent one was sent to death, and the sinner was set free. Jesus went to the cross, and Barabbas was let go. Guilt for innocence. The second trade. The third trade has to do with the crucifixion. The Catechism asks, is it significant that Jesus was crucified instead of dying some other way? Why couldn't Jesus have died of old age or died of sickness? Wouldn't that have accomplished the same thing? Wouldn't Jesus have died for the sins of the world? And the Catechism says no. It's important that Jesus was crucified because crucifixion carries a curse. And this is the third trait, that Jesus takes our curse and gives us his blessing. Jesus takes on the curse of sin, the curse that comes from God, and gives us blessing instead. Crucifixion was the Roman Empire's way of executing the worst criminals in society. A Roman citizen, or any person who was of any standing at all, wouldn't have a chance of being crucified, no matter how terrible of a crime they committed. This was a method of execution that was reserved for people who didn't have rights in the Roman Empire, was reserved for people who committed the worst kinds of crimes for robbery and murder and insurrection and conspiracy against the emperor, things like that. The people of God in the Old Testament did not use crucifixion as a method of execution. They used stoning in the Old Testament. But every once in a while, even in Old Testament society, a crime would be particularly terrible, and after stoning, people would uh, expose the body on a tree or on a pole. They would hang up the body to show everybody this is a terrible criminal. And in Deuteronomy 21, it talks about an instance like that. Deuteronomy 21 says, if someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day, because anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. And in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul makes clear that Jesus takes this curse on himself, bearing in his own body, as he hangs on that tree, the curse of God against sin. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ's death by crucifixion assures us then that he indeed bore the curse for us on the cross of Golgotha. He bore the burden of the curse of God. The day of Jesus' death was the day on which the curse was removed from all nations, and the blessing that God had once given to Abraham was extended to the Gentiles. 
Jesus removed our curse by becoming a curse for us. Eternal condemnation for eternal life. Guilt for innocence. Curses for blessings. This is the great exchange that happens because of Christ's suffering in his life. Because he suffered, body and soul, we are free, body and soul, to live boldly in the grace, the righteousness, and the eternal life that God has accomplished for us in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Oh, Lord, our God, when we consider the terrible suffering that you endured on our behalf, we have no words to express our gratitude. The wondrous love that you show for us in your life on earth, a life of suffering, a life that ends in a terrible death, is beyond comprehension. We thank you and we praise you that you have taken our damnation, that you have taken our curse, that you have taken our guilt, and instead have given us freedom in eternal life, in innocence, in blessing. We thank you that in Christ we stand righteous before you. And we pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may live lives of gratitude recognizing the great things that you have done for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.